Welcome to the one within all to another episode of Interverse. I'm super stoked to be here live and direct with my buddy Thomas Gorance, aka Paranoid American. We've been cooking up this show for a while. But before we get into it, everybody that's there in the chat live with us, please do us a solid and hit the like, you know, share it around to your favorite groups. If you're here after the fact listening to the replay, you can do the same. We very much appreciate it because this is going to be some very actionable intel tonight. You may have heard of the acronym NLP. You may be aware of neuro-linguistic programming. It's something that I'd heard of for years, but never really done much of a deep dive into. I've attempted some due diligence on the subject and found that it is a rabbit hole as vast as the occult itself. <laughs> and it's been called a model for modeling. It's been alleged to allow you to lead a more fulfilling life. And there's so many elements to it. Is it about vagueness? Is it about precision? There are many different aspects of NLP and ways of approaching it. Thomas had shared with me, I don't know, a month or two ago that he was actually taught by some of the top NLP practitioners and innovators and that he knew quite a lot about it. And I thought this would be a great show. So not entirely sure what his angle is. But I know that he's always got good stuff to share. And I've done my best to find out some things about it myself. And, you know, what's really fascinating, too, as I started to explore this, I realized there are many different techniques involved that might also relate to energy harvesting, psychic vampirism, tactics that a trained psychic vampire would actually be using, whether or not they called it NLP. He's nodding his head. He's apparently I'm getting it. (laughs) So everybody, thanks for being here. Welcome Paranoid American to the show. Check out his website, paranoidamerican.com for comics, for all kinds of other forms of media. What you got going on? Welcome, Thomas. What an intro and what an intro for the show, too. It puts you right into the right kind of creative space. I love I love the intro music and the visuals, everything. And and before we even start, I just want to say something and just hear it. Okay, just hear how this sounds to you and just close your eyes and imagine yourself smashing that like button 
smashing the subscribe button with like a huge hammer and it just bashes into a million pieces and then kind of like feel it as you push in that that bell you know feel yourself actually touching the bell and not only does it like make your hand vibrate but you hear it ring in your ears and you can almost see it you know vibrating around a little bit and what we just did was we gave an example of the three major representation systems when you're talking to people if you want to have more influence over them so most people think in terms of visual some people think in terms of audio and some people think in terms of kinesthetic and feeling so like if you were going to buy a car for example you wouldn't want to lead someone with like what kind of car do you see yourself driving because you might already not be speaking the same language as them because i just said something was auditory and then they might be there i want something that feels fast you know i want something that's got these smooth leather seats that you can really feel some people might say oh i just love that new car smell so just by taking these little indicators you can kind of pick up on, okay, I know what kind of language I I know what like level we can kind of meet on and have like a more productive discussion. And I think that some people might just inherently know this stuff. Like they just, they just take it on from social interactions and other people never know it. And then they read it in a book and then they're like, Oh, that's the thing. Like, that's what I've been missing. Or that's something that I can use to improve interactions. So I think that that's where a lot of people get caught up in NLP is, like, is it good? Is it bad? Because some people inherently do it. Or is it bad that like you would have to learn about it? So that's it's a it's an interesting concept to me. But that's kind of a, an overview of NLP and like, you know, a little three minute intro. Oh, there's so much to get into. But my take on it from doing some research before we get got into this to, uh, conversation is that even if you have some very strong natural charisma and ability to understand other people, the difference between learning it as a system or a, a full on model versus the bits and pieces that or even large chunks that you might interpret for yourself just in your own interactions with people. I think there's a big difference once you have a model, because now you're going to be like putting strategies into play for different types of people for different types of situations. And so what was on my mind right before we started is obviously there's so much to do with like sales. <laughs> like that's a big, a big draw is like salespeople want to learn this. And what I've found from researching this is there's two ways that NLP seems to present in the first sense, somebody that's maybe um, a genuine individual and just wants to be able to form stronger and better bonds with others. A lot of NLP is just being a good person. <laughs> or just being a good friend or being a good you know, um, salesperson or whatever service provider you're doing. And well, then the other side of NLP is learning be. how to simulate being a good person really well. <laughs> well, maybe I will say it, it also involves understanding what that metric is, because you might be an, a good person and not know it. There might be some people out there that are being, you know, shitty to people that they know and not realizing it or not taking it into account as much. So and and one thing that you're absolutely right on is that NLP seems to just converge with these sales seminars and uh, a lot of like health self-help guru type stuff because the term NLP itself over the last few decades has turned into almost a marketing term 
So now NLP is like a brand name. It's got a little trademark. It's got a little registered mark on it. And it means something very specific because now you can get licensed as an NLP trainer. And then it turns into this pyramid scheme where if I become a trainer, then I can train other people if they pay me enough money to become their trainer. And that's, you know, it's just like NLP seminars all the way down. Uh, But what the practices that NLP kind of encapsulates and teaches people that's the the real power behind them. And you can take all of these tools out of there. NLP is just sort of indicative of somebody that studies a bunch of different techniques and puts them together with intent. Yeah, that's well said, Thomas. And the other thing about it that is probably not apparent to the surface level observer or the weekend sales seminar conference attender is that the origins of NLP are very much connected to the world of Western occultism and magic. Yeah. I mean, some of the original writings on NLP are all about magic. Uh, Richard Bandler and I think John Grinder were like the two of the OGs in the NLP movement that I'm aware of. And before it kind of deteriorated because they're, they're split up between those two guys actually led to NLP splintering in a bunch of different directions and it kind of becoming this weird trademark corporate thing. But it really is the belief of magic. And in in my mind, NLP is probably the closest thing that I've seen to practical magic that works in a way that that absolutely, you know, blew my mind. But it's more of like an extremely powerful way of suggesting things to people through storytelling, through observing you know their their body patterns where they're looking the types of adjectives they're using just being aware of that kind of stuff it just gives you a lot more insight and on on top of that i'd like to consider it almost as a self-defense course because now when you see someone selling to you and you can see them picking up on your cues you don't have to necessarily it's not really like an antagonistic thing where like i'm fighting the sales guy but it's like I know all the tools in his toolbox because I got that same toolbox. You know what I mean? I totally do. And even above and beyond defense against the sales guy, as somebody that's done a lot of content in the past and probably needs to revisit it for the newer audience members on psychic vampirism, the tactics of NLP, even if someone isn't a trained NLP, got their certificate (laughs) with the corporate logo, someone who is a psychic vampire is going to use some of these tactics because it's all about getting in. And so we should definitely visit that at some point in the conversation. But overall, if I was going to put a nutshell on the whole thing to like, uh, before we start to get into the minutia, I think that what we're discovering when we look into this model or model of models is that The nature of the universe is mental. And whenever minds are in the same proximity with each other, it's sharing awareness or sharing space. There's a phenomenon where the more coherent mind seems to dominate and the other mind molds to the more coherent mind. And this is just like some natural mind universe dynamics. And if you understand that, you're even all the time you'll notice that like the people that have charisma they have vision they're holding a vision they they know the outcome that they want they're picturing it they're hearing it they're tasting it they're tapping into the feeling and so at the like in the simplest sense the more that you have a coherent vision and a coherent energy of what you want the people around you who are more sleepwalking through life or not really holding any kind of vision they're they will tend to just sort of 
mold to your vision. That's the simplest way. And then all the rest of this conversation is just like the nuts and bolts of how that actually works in particular circumstances and strategies. Yeah, I think a good way of putting it is that NLP, you can almost view it as if you were to reverse engineer someone with a lot of charisma. So you would just kind of sit down and observe every successful behavior that person has and index it and turn it into like a worksheet of like a checklist. And that's almost exactly what NLP truly is, because I think that's how a lot of the original practices got honed in on. And I want to say that in my mind, there's two kind of categories. There's this natural charisma that maybe you're just born with and you just know how to vibe with people immediately. Everyone knows like that social butterfly that can sort of vibe in every single scenario. It's definitely not my personality, but I know many people that fit that personality but then you also have probably Leo's is it Leo's. I mean, I never asked the actual, <laughs> we're in, we're in Leo season. It's actually really appropriate. <laughs> we're talking about charisma, but well, so, so that's that natural charisma aspect. But then the other part are all things that you can sort of learn and, and train and do. And that's kind of where like the con man comes in, right? Cause con man stands for confidence, man. Cause if you go into a room and like you were saying that people gravitate towards, I guess the more coherent argument, there's almost like a, a hierarchy. So first it goes on confidence. If the right person walks in with the right amount of confidence and all the wrong information, they could more likely than not sell a whole bunch of people over. There's a, there's actually a book I highly recommend called the crowd. It was written in like the late 1800s, but this, uh, this book by Gustave Le Bon, he kind of explains how, All you have to do is once people get into a crowd is just appeal to like the lowest common denominator, because if you can get them all to understand one mantra, that's way more powerful. So that's kind of like step one. Then if you've got multiple people that have equal charisma, right. And they've got people just listening though. that book. I just want to throw out there. It's Gustav Le Bon and it is Gustav Le Bon. The crowd psychology is a popular mind. Crowd psychology is a must to understand. It will help you comprehend where we're at in society right now as we move further towards that. The, the, the book summarized in a sentence is that a crowd is a person. A crowd is a dumb person. <laughs> there you go. You treat it a crowd. its own entity. That's right. Correct. And it, and it can never be the it can never be a cumulative intelligence of the people within it. It's always just the single lowest common denominator is the intelligence of that new crowd entity. But I was going to say outside of that natural born gift of having charisma, there's this extra step. And it used to be kind of like the seven liberal arts, uh, or at least the trivium, which was um, grammar, uh, rhetoric and or grammar, logic and rhetoric. Right. So if you've got the confidence, then all of a sudden it's like whoever has the best grammar, the best logic and the best rhetoric now wins. And that's, I mean, people were taught this for years and years. And now like, you know, uh, coincidentally enough, the only real industries that teach rhetoric are going to be politics and sales outside of those two areas and maybe like self-help courses and stuff. But that's why this like NLP uh, and sales thing sort of like feels like they're in the same space because it's a lot of it's about rhetoric. So the way that you're waving your hands around right now, are you NLPing on me right now? <laughs> uh, I mean, not intentionally, maybe that's a, that's another really good one. So if I were to do this every time I wanted to make a good point, 
if I was intentionally doing it, which I wasn't originally, but now maybe every time I want to make a good point, I'll do it with this hand. And then if I want to like be like, oh yeah, but this guy had like a really horrible idea and like I wouldn't do this. So now every time I like lean over this way, it'll just automatically infer something that I disprove of. And then maybe if I like lean over this way when I'm talking, you know, I might smile, I might be more energetic. And this is kind of called spatial anchoring. And then if I go over here and I kind of act like I'm a little bit more bored or maybe a little bit more skeptical. And then if I can just like entrain that, like I'm telling you what I'm doing now, so it doesn't seem like it's as much of a magic trick. But if you just do that inherently after, you know, 18 minutes of us being on here, then all of a sudden I can just be like, oh, and here's this great idea I wanted to tell you. And if I do it from this angle, if you know what I mean, versus from over here, this might have some extra subconscious effect on you because I've charged this side of your vision with one type of feeling and then I've charged this side of your vision with a totally different feeling. You know what I mean? Yeah. Let's actually, since you brought up anchoring, that's a good place to start in terms of exposing some of the techniques here. I wouldn't, <laughs> although pretty much everyone that does YouTube videos talking about or teaching NLP does talk like an Italian and their hands are all over the place. <laughs> and you notice this it's annoying. Talk, it gets really annoying. It's like in, they do it intensely. The, the real NLP wizards you'll notice this with a lot of politicians though trump is notorious about it i will say i don't think you should just assume everyone you see who talks with their hands is trying to program you because there is a natural element to that but let's talk more about the different elements of anchoring because there's basically all your senses can have a type of anchoring done on them and it's probably the most subtle element of yet also noticeable if you know what you're looking for but it's subtle because it flies under people's radar they're listening with their ears. They're just trying to hear the content and the meaning of the speech. You're not realizing that maybe a touch, maybe the way the space is used, maybe even eye direction. All of that has to do with <laughs> how influence is being garnered. So, yeah, let's d drop more into anchoring about the, the elements of it, what it specifically is as a type of conditioning. I mean, I, the best way that you can kind of describe anchoring it's you put someone into a charged state and then you link that charged state to some sort of a sensation, a physical sensation. So a lot of people, maybe if you think about the like your first dance or like if you got married, what song they were playing when you were, you know, uh, dancing um, or every couple has the, a song or if you just had like your rebellious teenage song that you put on when mom told you to clean your room and you were like, screw this. Right. And it comes on 20 years later and you just feel like. I'm going to go have a beer, you know, or, or it feels like you feel romantic because your couple song comes on years after you haven't heard it. That's a, the most obvious version of an anchor. There's, you know, um, olfactory anchors are the strongest because our, our olfactory memories, the things that you smell actually link to memories the strongest as well. So you might smell like a perfume that your grandma used to wear and you hadn't seen her, you know, maybe she's been gone for a while and you'll just pop up with memories of that person and, you know, locations you've been in. Sometimes you'll get like a smell and be like, Oh man, this reminds me of that one time that I had this like ice cream. And when I was seven at the beach, like it can get very, very specific. Now those ones are much harder to anchor to people, but if you were to like train yourself, a lot of magical practices, right? They, they burn certain herbs. So if you just get into this, constant phase of I'm going to burn sage and when I burn sage I'm in a certain mental space after a while just smelling the sage can quickly put you back into that mental space because it's now anchored 
to the smell of sage. So you can do this intentionally. Uh, a lot of people, if they're trying to be mindful, a lot of um, like reality checks, you'll touch each one of your fingers and maybe the pads in between your fingers. And you just kind of do that constantly until you get used to it. Um, and this is just like when you're listening to new information, some people, if they're kinesthetic, just by touching their fingers like this, as they're hearing something, you'll retain it for a longer amount of time. And if you don't know how to do that, then you might not realize it. Some people get fidgety. Some people draw and they doodle when they're taking notes. And if they don't do that, they can't focus as hard. That's also a, a sign of kinesthetic learning. So it's those kind of things and being able to point out and then start leveraging that for yourself. So like just feeling your yourself touching the paper after a while becomes an anchor of like, I'm in the zone. I'm in this learning mode because my hand's doing this thing again. And like, you, you know, you feel it rub on the bottom or if however people do it now on the iPads, right. But you, you feel a very certain way physically as you're doing certain tasks. And the more that you get yourself in the zone, repeat that this is almost where practice comes in. It's like a, a magical ritual almost. So yeah, that's the, the two pronged nature of NLP is that you can use it on yourself for your own good. It's actually a lot more practical in many ways than a lot of self-help, which tends to be a lot of uh, nice sounding fluffy axioms without any real actionables. <laughs> and NLP does have some actionables. We can get into that. So are you saying that if you maybe came up with a particular thing to do with your fingers or your hands that to you meant I want to retain this information. And you did that whenever you were trying to pay extra attention, then that would be effective. Absolutely. There's something called the tap method too, that I'm, I'm not as big into this one because I've, I've got my own techniques, but if you look online for the tap method, there's certain ways of doing it when people like maybe tap their head or they'll tap like the side of their hand. And all it is, is a kinesthetic anchor. So first you put yourself into a state, a highly, uh, you know, some kind of a high state that you're looking towards. And then you just start tapping yourself. And that's the whole, that's the entire trick. And it really is that simple that you can, you can do this kind of thing. Another one is you can like reserve special songs for if you're going to go on like some trip, you know, if you're going to go and climb a mountain and, you know, you feel like the different oxygen and the adrenaline and everything, and just listen to that song on repeat as you're at the top of that mountain. And then don't listen it to at all until you know a year later or something and you'll just be transported right back to that and if you do these things with intent then you can create these anchors for yourself and this gets into like memory techniques because again nlp doesn't have a monopoly on every mental technique out there it's really just like a collection if you were to go to walmart and they had like the combo bundle sale you know buy everything 80 percent off it would say nlp on the front but once you open it up, it's just a whole bunch of different interconnected pieces. One of the aspects of the, the meta model of NLP are these three neurological processes that we're running all the time as a way to help us navigate our reality, to create our mental map of life. And those processes would be generalization, distortion, and deletion. That's right. at least how I came to learn about it. So what we're talking about with this anchoring is like, you know, a lot of times whenever we particularly maybe podcasts like this, where it's infotainment, there's information. It could be useful. It could be life changing, but it's also entertainment. So how do we cross that bridge intentionally when we know like, oh, this is the good gravy. I need to make sure that I don't lose this because one of the elements of entertainment 
is that the deletion part of your neural processes will be running on about a 90%, you know, making a generalization, but it's going to be mostly in one ear and out the other because it's more about filling the space and keeping you from having to be alone with your thoughts in the quiet darkness. (laughs) So this anchoring, this physical kinetic anchoring could be, you know, really handy for making sure that you retain something that actually seems useful whenever you're in that moment and you don't have to revisit it maybe. There's some other good examples of this. Like if you're watching a commercial, this is like an old school technique, but usually the music will come to a crescendo or like the part where you can, you can hear the final catchphrase and then they'll pop the logo on the screen for no more than like sometimes just like a second or two and then take it away because that's way more impactful than just letting it kind of burn in and become this generalized thing part of the background. So it's way more impactful to be like, bam, McDonald's logo, fade out. So that's just one type of anchor, you know, and that's why they always show like these families and like, oh man, that family looks so happy, bam, McDonald's, go away. So that way, hopefully in like three or four hours later, you're not even thinking about family. You're not thinking about McDonald's, but you just get like a feeling. You're thinking, I want to be happy. And then McDonald's comes into your mind. Right, the little smile and everything. So that that's one part of it. Um, but I, I think that you brought up a good point. There's another NLP tactic that's not necessarily anchoring. And I'm not gonna do like a whole demonstration of it because it would take it would take a little while. But basically it's called story embedding. And you can do it as many layers as you want, but to keep it simple, if you had two different things you wanted to teach people, you would decide, do I want them to remember it in an hour from now as they're like, you know, leaving the convention or, or whatever they're, you know, leaving something and I want them to remember on the way to the parking lot, or is it something I want them to remember a week from now, like mo- a little bit more deeply? Cause those are two slightly different things. And with an embedded story, you start with a story and you get sort of like right into the middle of it. And right after you get to the part where you're about to describe, like, here's the whole reason I'm telling the story. You're like, well, actually, hold on. Before I continue this, I got, I got this other story. Well, now that second story that you're, you're telling is called the embedded story. So you tell this whole story beginning to end. And then you're like, okay, well, now that I told that story, let's return back to my first story. So anyways, there I was, you know, and like they, they surrounded me. And then you finish that story up. And what will happen is that outer story, that's the one that they're going to remember, like on the way back to the parking lot, they might talk about it that night. But that embedded story that you told inside, that's the one that might just like pop up, like when they're in the shower four or five days later. And the more and you have to be pretty skilled to like just keep your own train of thought if you're like five stories deep. But if you can get five stories deep, it truly does work in a very linear way. Like the deeper the story, the deeper it gets embedded in the memory to, to some points where if you bury it so far, you're almost implanting like vague feelings and stuff. Like you're not gonna be able to just retrieve a very exact formula or exact statement that I gave you. So you have to, that's why you have to understand, you know, how long do you want someone to remember something? I've often been complimented in my ability to circle back whenever I start getting lost into tangents, <laughs> manage to come back and retrieve the first one. So maybe that's some like natural NLPing. But what I think the logic behind what you're describing is, if this sounds right, that when you get to the you're almost to like the climactic moment of the story. And so while you've got all that charge, now you put the entire other story in Develop it in the charge of the climactic moment of the first story. And on additionally, you can even 
charge it with whatever the emotional tone of story one was to associate story two with that emotional tone. And exactly. yeah, that sounds yeah, you, crazy you to get it, three, exactly. four, five levels deep. That's inception. It's a dream within a dream within a dream. Right. And and when I had the training from Bandler, he did it like three levels in and didn't didn't necessarily tell us the difference between levels until the end of the like the week. And then it like I'd love that training because it was, hey, look, here's all these memories and all these feelings that I've implanted into you. And you had no idea that I was doing it, even though you're here and like you understand the context of everything. And I still was able to kind of program you guys. So that that was really mind blowing to me. So who's this guy, Bandler? Richard Bandler is just one half of the original NLP crew, and he just wrote a lot of books on it. And you found your way just kind of synchronistically getting firsthand training from him. When was this? I think this was like 2005 or 2006. And yeah, synchronistically, he just happened to have been throwing this NLP convention, like walking distance from, I didn't walk there because I'm in Florida, but it was like maybe two miles away from where I was staying. And he does this and people fly in from all over the world to come and do this training. And I just figured like, you know, these guys going here are spending thousands and thousands of dollars in airfare and hotels just to get here and then go to the training. Like I can just go back to my apartment at the end of the day and, you know, like go to the grocery store. Like I don't have any of the overhead that all these guys are. And at the time it was a huge amount of money to me. It was like $600, like a last minute ticket. We've got, you know, X number of seats, total sales tactic. But I figured, you know, I'm, I'm going to go check this out. And I didn't know anything about Richard Bandler in particular. I knew that NLP was something because it came up in my MK Ultra research. And a lot of people would be like, oh, NLP is MK Ultra and NLP is the way that they use mind control. So I was like, OK, that sounds pretty cool. You know, I'll go to a, a seminar and figure out how to do MK mind control. And I mean, unironically, it kind of was a little bit of that. Oh, we're going to have to expand on the MK ultra connections for sure. But, you know, before we leave the topic of anchoring, I wanted to give an example of just how visceral the anchoring can actually be because it's something that happens, as you said, you know, maybe the song for your first dance at your wedding, things that you just naturally experience in your life will anchor powerfully in relation or proportion to how powerful the emotion and the, the meaning and importance of the event was. But an example I would give of how the, psychosomatic anchoring can affect you in very, very extreme ways would be something that people probably just look at as natural and normal. And that would be like big sinus problems, allergies with the sinuses where one day in the, like, or a few days a week or every once in a while, you just have this huge inflammatory response and your nose closes up and you can't breathe, you get congested, it's all uncomfortable. We've all probably had that at least once or twice. And some people have it regularly. And what goes unrealized by almost anybody that I only came across because of doing biofield tuning and occasionally having clients that wanted to work on their sinus problems, I realized that the whole, the whole issue with the sinuses tends to stem from a particular types of childhood trauma and mm. the the trauma being associated with certain smells. Like in a client that I had recently, the smell ended up being like, I didn't know this at the time, but 
what came into my mind whenever I was working, it was in the solar plexus level was where the stuck energy mostly was. And I got this sense of like grapes, something like grapes, grapevines, wild grapes. That was what I thought. And I was like, is, is that the smell? That's the trigger for this person. And what it ended up being was that their very abusive parents had been drinkers. So it might not have always been wine, but like the smell of grapes or, or wine would potentially be one of these. Manischewitz or something, right? That could be what was triggering the sinus problems for her. And then like, you know, how many people have the same reaction from cigarette smoke, which is, you know, normal in a way because cigarette smoke has all kinds of toxins and poisons in it. But the point being, like, if that's you're someone good, that's out a there, great example, though, some people almost unconsciously train themselves to like gag or cough at the smell of cigarette smoke. So like sometimes they'll cough, not because the smoke is actually irritating their lungs or anything, but because they've anchored that smell to this physical reaction. And I mean, it's, it's not a good or a bad thing. It's just something that once you observe it, then you can stop it in its tracks almost or you can have other people do it. Yeah. So with the client, I'm giving the example of they were repressing irritation. And so the repression of irritation shows up somatically as when the irritant is in their environment and the olfactory detects it, the nose completely closes up to avoid the anchoring of memories and feelings associated with that smell. So the nose completely closes to protect her from having to feel and remember this, the stuff with her parents when she was a kid, because you know how a smell can just take you right back to even super far long ago in childhood. So that's like something to consider for people with sinus problems that you might be experiencing an attempt to protect yourself. Your body is trying to protect you from some kind of suppressed emotion or feeling that you've told it is off limits, maybe subconsciously. So that's like the level of impact that just this one element anchoring could have and even comprehending it could help you undo stuff going on with you that you didn't realize was conditioning. You thought maybe it's just your body malfunctioning, but the body doesn't malfunction. <laughs> it's like, it's incredible. It's, it's divine. It is always doing what it thinks it needs to do for homeostasis or to protect you or just following the last instructions it received. And you can update those restru- uh, instructions if you have some idea of you know, what you would rather it be doing. And that's, again, back to the coherence thing. The one with the vision and the intent that they're holding and they're clear about, that's going to be the model that everybody else coheres to if they're the low common denominator, as it were. So tell me more about MK Ultra and NLP, Thomas. Oh, well, I mean, some of that crossover is just because NLP is a very practical version, a lot of this, and a lot of stage hypnotists will tend to use NLP. And that's because, I mean, arguably the origin of NLP kind of goes back to mesmerism and what they used to call animal magnetism. And they used to truly look at this as like an energy field that you could harvest or nurture or transfer around to people. And I believe it was you know, Franz Mesmer, which mesmerism is named after. There's sort of this evolution between this original concept of animal spirit or animal magnetism to mesmerism to hypnotism to modern day psychology. And the the thing is that between hypnotism and psychology, hypnotism actually kind of branched and became its own thing. 
and it didn't just go directly into psychology and people just stopped doing hypnotism. So then you had hypnotism that became clinical. You had some that became, you know, stage magicians. And then you've got a lot of hypnotists that got into just becoming con men and maybe, you know, politicians and every other walks of life that you can imagine. These people that were just inherently good at do- being magicians um, and, and hypnotists or people that train themselves to be hypnotists. So, I mean, it's it's a very real practice. It's just we still live in a weird age where there's not a lot of coordination between psychology and psychiatry, right? So the guys that give you drugs to fix your behavior versus the guys that have you do like introspection to fix your behavior are not necessarily always seeing eye to eye. Some even invalidate each other's entire field of work. So I I think that that puts it in a weird spot where psychology tends to get a little bit less credit than psychiatry does just because it's a little bit more subjective. It's a little bit more like, let's give this a try and see how it goes. Even though they kind of do that with, with uh, the medicines too, that the psychiatrist will prescribe, right? It's just that the medicine is like a thing you can point out and put under a microscope. Whereas some of these, you know, psychological processes that fall into this NLP category, they aren't necessarily something that you can point at and describe to everybody the same way. Yeah, that's an important distinction. That uh, What I want to say about that would be the how magic, if I was to define magic in a really simple, or actually the occult, more than magic, because magic is almost like the putting it into practice, the wisdom of the knowledge. But the occult at large is really boiled down as cosmic psychology the framework that the micro and macro operates on in unison how the image of universe that is man or the image of god that is man learning how they their mind dynamics flow and operate means that you're learning you're pulling the levers of the whole cosmos if you get that right (laughs) because you know we have this fractality to life and to our nature and I think that's a big aspect of MK Ultra that goes unspoken that, yeah, they're learning how to mind control individuals and get them to follow orders and programs. But in doing so, like, you know, you, you may have wondered the question, how, ha- how did experiments, you know, feeding people LSD and doing Pavlonian conditioning on them and subjecting them to trauma to fracture their psyche to implant ideas and triggers and yada yada what does that have to do with controlling all of society everything (laughs) because everything is everything you follow when it's not that hard to control all society at this point when if you can control six huge corporations right or at least have influence over those corporations that's pretty much controlling society at this point. Uh, and and if you're talking about popular culture, specifically music, movies, TV, art, uh, maybe just like social movements, it's not really that outlandish to consider the CIA and Coca-Cola, for example, coming together and saying, hey, I think this might be the for the betterment of the world. Let's just start pushing this particular message or this particular agenda. So, I mean, that's not even out of the the realm of possibility. In fact, that's pretty much what goes on every day now. Uh, and it's, it might not just be directly the CIA. It'll be some sort of advocacy group or some sort of research think tank group that puts together a report. And then the report says this, but then the people 
that put the report together are all ex-CIA or all ex-FBI. Uh, and I mean, that's pretty much the reality that we live in now. And I don't think it requires this Bavarian Illuminati or even a hip hop Illuminati anymore. It just requires a quick four person Zoom meeting. It's like, hey, I've got this new agenda. Did you check that PDF I sent you? Yeah, you know, the bottom line, I think, you know, we invest this much. We get this much return. You want to do this? Yeah, let's do it. Bam. There you go. Illuminati meeting, you know, uh, adjourned. So I, I think that that's pretty much the extent of it. But the decisions that are made in those quick little moments, this is sort of impactful, just as impactful as, say, like the psychedelic revolution. A lot of that came from Hollywood being informed about that. And then Henry Luce of Time Life magazine showing the research of Gordon P. Wasson with the magic mushroom and Salvi the Venerum and all these psychedelics. Um, the LSD came out into Hollywood far before anyone in pop culture knew about it. And it was in a movie called The Tingler with uh, Vincent Price at the very beginning before, you know, the psychedelic re revolution even tried to, to rear its little head. So I, I think that... All of these things just show that sometimes it's not even they're trying to make the culture this certain way. But if they're the ones that start, if they're the ones that light the wick, you know what I mean? Then you've got a little bit more control over it because now you know how long ago it was lit, maybe how long it was, how long you've got until you need to go and run. So a, a part of this to get into like a little bit of the weeds is that Hegelian dialectic where if you can create the problem, then you can also offer the solution. So if I can own both ends of that scale, that I've got way more control than otherwise. And that's how on a one-on-one, -on -one, somebody who is trained in NLP or is just a master manipulator is going to try to work you as well, right? They, they might appeal to, they might appeal to what you, <laughs> the way that they'll do it is like the, the psyche doesn't have the, like the unconscious doesn't understand negation, right? So that's the part of NLP is, that's right. <laughs> how how can that, how does that incorporate into NLP when they're able to use that sort of double negative magic on you to actually get you thinking about what they want you to think about or intending what they want you to intend? Yeah, the, the big one is like don't think about a big fat penguin right now. Um, that's one version of negation. Another sneakier one that gets into maybe MK Ultra Mockingbird territory is where they'll they'll put a crazy headline on page one and huge bold font. And then they can print a retraction on like the last page and the fine print a week later. And all you have to do, it's, it's almost the same in like a courtroom where if you say something that you know is going to be stricken for the record, but the jury gets to hear it, even though the judge is like, you know, strike that from the record. The fact that you got to say it has way more impact than someone saying, Oh yeah, that thing that you heard, forget that thing, you know, that thing that you read, forget that it was wrong. Now it just makes you remember the original thing again. And it now has like even more power over you. So it, it's interesting how that works. And, and again, retractions happen, mistakes happen. But if you understand that, that value and that law of negation, then now you can intentionally put the wrong thing first and then say, Oh wait, I didn't mean that. Uh, and if you do that intentionally, you know, maybe that's where you're getting into like this nefarious, malicious use of of NLP. That's where, you know, once you start becoming a con man, I think is where that line's at. But th there's no like NLP judges going around being like, ah, you stepped over the line. <laughs> that's uh, all the teachers that I watch their videos about NLP. <laughs> they always eventually have to address that fact of, you know, 
I do often get accused of being a manipulator <laughs> or trying to control people. And it's funny because they'll say like, well, just remember karma's a bitch and you'll get, if you have bad intent or, you know, you'll get what you're dishing out. It'll come back around. But here's how you manipulate people. <laughs> Maybe, although they might just be saying that because it's what you you need to hear, which is also yeah. there's a lot of NLP that falls into this Machiavellian and justifies the means territory for sure. Yeah, I'm trying to think like what a good territory to cover off in, you know, the the next 20 minutes of our free segment. But what do you know about the differences between the two main models of NLP, the meta and the Milton. So, I mean, Milton is based on like more of the hypnosis model and the meta is actually a little bit dated at this point. So like a lot of the, a lot of the NLP stuff that you look up now that refers to either of those two models is very much like the packages, right? That's like the vanilla and the cherry flavorings of these like Walmart packaged, you know, things. I, I prefer to to look less at the full models and look at the entire toolbox, like the things that you can you can pluck out of it. So, I mean, because I'm not becoming a trainer, right? Like some people make NLP their thing and everything they look at is in terms of NLP. But I think that there's like really particular tools that find really helpful. So one of them is reframing, which is a huge aspect of, I believe the meta model is reframing. And one of the best practical examples, and everyone would have a different version for themselves, but I used to have to drive when I was working at Disney. Sometimes, I'm not even exaggerating, sometimes through like three hours there, three hours back uh, of traffic. And it was it was like a 20-minute drive if there was no traffic, but it's because it's Disney. So in order to combat my road rage that I would start to get very frequently, like, you know, aggressive driving and maybe uh, just getting angry and like my my blood pressure getting up, I started to reimagine, hey, I'm going to like a family function and that asshole that just cut me off. That's, you know, uncle so and so. And that person that's going like super slow in the fast lane that's preventing me from getting off at the exit. You know, that's that's grandma. And I'm just following grandma like. Like, I just want to be sure that she's safe. Obviously, none of these are my family. They're just random assholes on the road. But once you can put yourself into that different sort of mind state, once you reframe, now all of a sudden, you know, like, I'm actually convinced yourself that you're going to some kind of family function and all these people on the road are your friends. They're not your enemies. And then you can just kind of like, you know, maybe anchor yourself into that. Maybe you hold the steering wheel a certain way once you realize that you're kind of in like that Zen mode. Maybe you hold it from the bottom. Maybe you do it from like one hand. And then if you do that long enough, now if you just get into that pose, you don't even have to do the whole role playing thing where it's like, okay, convince yourself that that's Uncle Charlie that just, you know, almost swiped in the side of your car. So that's one really good example of two techniques, reframing and anchoring kind of combined together. And there's a whole there's a whole bunch of other ones that are incredibly useful to just teach yourself. Yeah, this is like the reason why somebody who's had a meditation practice in their life for, you know, an actual practice with consistency for at least a a span of time. When they take a three or five deep breaths, they can change their state really fast a lot faster than somebody that didn't have all that practice because you've anchored the taking a deep, slow breath and taking another deep, slow breath with the parasympathetic nervous system <laughs> switch. So in the same way, I think Tony Robbins, it is that like beats his chest 
whenever he wants to put himself in a certain state, he probably has like yeah, multiple. Man, it's valid. It's very valid. Yeah. So you could, you know, whatever the same with scent, you know, if I clap my hands twice, it means I'm going into this state. And if you do it with enough repetition, you've conditioned yourself. So when you're talking about this reframing, is that what they call swishing? Also, or is that oh, more swishing more about breaking bad habits? So yeah, no, swishing is more about like breaking patterns. Uh, I like the, the swish method is very much like I'm going up for my license, and there's going to be questions, and I'm going to have to like get them right and do like multiple choice and stuff. Um, like like there's a good example of that pattern breaking. If you ever watch a professional hypnotist, they always do the exact same thing, and they'll basically touch the person right before this big thing supposed to have an impact sometimes it's like on the shoulder gently sometimes it'll tap them like on the side you also see in the uh like the evangelist right where the guy's like the holy spirit and they'll like bop them on the head and then the person will kind of fall back usually you'll, you'll time that in a way that you make them expect it so let's say like you see my hand coming i might not bop you right away i might delay it for like half a second and then bop you and just that tiny little change in what your anticipation was, and then me breaking that that uh, anticipation, so it wasn't the predictable version. The second that happens, now you've got like nanoseconds to start implanting suggestive themes, and it's almost like a cheat code. It's like you've you've just hot wired the car, and now the next thing that you say to someone goes right through all of their filters. So even if they had their defenses up, and another good example in like the business world is like a handshake. So sometimes like this is a, I don't know if you've ever heard of Darren Brown. He's a a stage magician from the UK. I highly recommend checking out his stuff. It's pretty much all like practical NLP. Sometimes he breaks it down, but he'll go to reach to, for someone's hand as they're going to shake their hand. And like right before their two hands meet, he'll take his hand away and maybe put it like on their shoulder and you can see them like get confused and then look at the shoulder and then he'll immediately make a request them. Hey, let me get your watch. Hey, you know, let me hold that phone really quick. And if you get someone into that weird state where you just broke their pattern, if, if you're not used to being snapped out of your pattern frequently, it's like you're just like left open in defense for a little bit. You know, it's like like, like someone cracking their that liminal like space. Breaker. What's that? You're cracking their liminal space. Absolutely. And and you can also do that with um, an over overflow theory. This is called a, the logical fallacy of like Gip, Gip Galish or Gip Gosh or something. But it's when you just flood somebody with nonstop facts there's a version of this and I think it's called like the Russian pickpocket scheme. It's like, you know, very uh, specific naming convention, but if you can give someone seven different things to hold in their mind at any given moment, then everything that you can tell them after that is also this like cheat code. So if you go up to someone, Hey, do you know what time it is? And as you're looking to your watch, Oh, um, do you know, is main street that way or this way? Oh, by the way, you know, have you seen a red car around here? And if you can stack sometime, it's between five and seven different things. If that person is mentally engaging and juggling all those things in mind, then you could just be like, take out your wallet and give it to me right now, please. And like, again, those like later ones, they kind of get like added to the queue, but your body will start going through these actions before your mind catches up. And then you're like, Oh, wait a minute. It's like, did I just give that guy, Holy crap, what's going on here? And that's what high pressure sales sometimes revolves around. You'll have someone like, if you go to a car and they're explaining the trim, like, Oh, the audio system. And, and look at this, the windshield wipers and the automatic video. And, and just by loading all that stuff up and then they'll start slipping in the other stuff that they want you to hear 
but not listen to. You know what I mean? Yeah, o- overloading them a bit. And then there's the element of hypnotism, where hypnotism will start out with telling them like f- basically truthful, simple, truthful things that they have to, they just automatically agree with. So this is another element of NLP, if I'm not mistaken, that if you yeah. stack someone up, it doesn't have to be questions necessarily. It can just be statements of obvious self-evident truth. And you follow that with what you want to get. Basically, you're putting their body into the 100% full body. Hell yes, that is true. And then while they're activated in that physical state, then you give the suggestion you want to give them. That's something that's an element of hypnotism that they're do that NLP practitioners will do to a awake person, but it's almost like micro sleeps. You know, you like snap them into the state just for long enough to hotwire the car, as you put it. It works on everyone too. This, the short version I've heard when this isn't like sales speak, it's that you'll usually get a yes after you've already got a yes. So like you can, like you said, they call it stacking yeses sometimes. And it's just where you want nonstop affirmative answers. So like, Hey, you know, if if you know the answers to these, you can ask these questions. If you know the answers, yes. Hey, you got kids. Oh, you got a wife, you know? Um, yeah, you live in the area. Like just by asking those th- three things, yeses, your body again, like subliminally, it's like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm agreeable with this guy. You know, we're, we're agreeable. It builds, and this is the NLP phrase of the of the year is just rapport. And that's pretty much what most of NLP is about is building rapport. And you can almost consider rapport as like an invisible social credit system that we're all cataloging on each other. Right. We've all got our own little crypto banks of social currency. So when you walk by someone in the hall, you're like, oh, you know, that guy's an asshole or whatever. Like, that's kind of what NLP is building on. It's just constantly making huge deposits into that bank so that when you walk by, you're like, man, that guy's awesome, you know? And again, some people are just naturally awesome and a joy to be around, whereas maybe sometimes people are specifically, like, finding chance, you know, and, like, plot, oh, he's going to have his lunch at, you know, this exact time. I'll just happen to walk by and mention his favorite show. I mean, that stuff happens, right? It's, like, almost like an element of catfishing or stalking, but it's the same tactics. But, I again, it's different where, like, maybe a stalker is just born with the same techniques that, like, a master salesman does. They just happen to apply it in, like, a very creepy way. Well, we'll we'll talk about the... Uh... <laughs> you call it stalker. I'm just going to say energy vampire. We'll talk about that side of it more in hour two. Cause that's something I think that we can put our heads together on. I've done a lot of <laughs> looking into that phenomenon as like a real energy transfer that goes on. And as I studied NLP, I was like, Oh, the, yeah, the psychic vampire uses these exact techniques. So we'll, we'll get into that, but I want to in, you know, I want to talk more about the swish right now. Because I want to leave the free hour listeners with something actionable that they can do to help themselves break out of habits they don't like. So can we? Well, I've just- got another one. I've got I've got one that's that's part of Swish, but it's I feel it's more practical than memorizing this kind of like salesy system. Yeah. So this is a combination of a memory technique that could potentially change your life, but it's also it's got some anchoring in it, and it'll it'll help you get into like a different mood. Um, and it's a little bit more powerful than that reframing that I mentioned, because that one you have to be in the right mood to convince that asshole that just cut you off that it's like grandma or whatever. So this one, 
imagine the the best present that you got when you were a kid whatever age if it was christmas if it was a birthday present but just imagine like getting that thing and opening it up and just the um, the uh feeling of just sheer joy i guess as you rip open that package right you're holding this thing in your hand now imagine that you're at your house right now you're standing outside of wherever you live at the front door now that object that you just had in your hand that was your favorite toy ever as a kid imagine like a 20 foot version of it just blocking your front door like if you were to walk up to your house you couldn't even get inside because there's a 20 foot version of your favorite toy your favorite gift ever blocking your way and now just kind of like imagine your routine tomorrow think about the first time that you're going to see your door think about the last time you're going to see your door you're going to go outside tomorrow to like get your mail do you take the garbage out tomorrow and just imagine yourself as you're walking back to your house that that big toy or that big gift is blocking your way again. Imagine that happening to you tomorrow. Now there's a really good chance that anyone that went through that tomorrow, when they're walking back to their house and they see their front door, they might not see the 20 foot huge thing, but they'll think of that thing. And now, I mean, that's just one way and and a, a really cool, this is what you would call memory palace or the entrance to the memory palace is that you could keep building on this. So now imagine that after you push this big thing out of the way, you got to almost like chisel it out of the way to get it out of your way, right? And then you finally pry open the front door. And now on the front door is your favorite family member greeting you and they're playing your favorite song. And see how like now you've got this this kind of like um, deep memory that's building up where you go to the front of your house and you see your favorite toy you go through the front door and now you see your favorite person and they're playing your favorite song then you go into like the very first room that you're in maybe you make your way to the kitchen when you go in the kitchen someone's making your favorite meal you can smell it so the more that you do that and you can kind of like walk through that space mentally and smell those things and see the same things if you do that two or three times in one day you'll remember that for over a year. Like it's, it sounds insane, but you truly can do that. And you can train yourself to do that almost with like shopping lists. So you can just mentally think of the stuff that you needed to buy tomorrow and just kind of place those items around your house. So then when you're at the grocery store, you just think, okay, what, like, was there an apple at the front door? And usually you would have to be like a 50 foot apple. It can't just be a regular, normal sized apple. And this is another aspect of NLP, even in the, in the swish method, this is the uh, the idea. I'll give you one other aspect of the swish. You take that that toy that you really love or that gift that you really love that fills you with joy and you imagine it in your mental space and now just like zoom it in like it's in Photoshop, just like make it bigger and brighter and bring it closer to your face so that you can almost like feel the color bursting off of it. That should also amplify your feelings and you could do the same thing with the opposite. If you've got uh, an awkward encounter that you'd had recently and you think back to it, it makes you like cringe internally. Like, Oh, I can't believe I said that, or I did that thing. Imagine that playing on a movie screen. You're like watching that thing play out. And then imagine that that movie screen is like getting farther and farther away. And then it starts getting kind of blurry. And then like the color gets taken out. Now it's just kind of like a black and white blurry low res version of that interaction. And you can keep repeating that mental process and it has the same effect where now as you like zoom things away and take them out of focus and blurry and black and white, it also takes away its power over you. So you, you just kind of like associate with it less. And that's another big aspect of that swish method is where you do this like visual zoom in, zoom out stuff.
And then the small amount about it that I learned had also to do with essentially re-correlating bad habit behaviors. So one of the elements of why we repeat some kind of, you know, habit that's not good for us is usually because it's got some correlation with something else that makes it attractive to us. And I'm really oversimplifying. We might talk more about this an hour too, but as I understand it, you know, like this is the example I would, that I would practice if I was going to put this into practice. And and I think I will is say that you're a late night snacker. You wake up like at two in the morning and you got to go raid the fridge and you would like to lose some weight. So at the point where you're triggered to go do the thing that you want to stop doing, you instead make sure to picture yourself in the state you want to be in that you would be in if you didn't do the thing regularly. So, you know, for me, I would like picture myself looking trimmer and fitter and healthier and try to re-correlate so that whenever that trigger of the stomach rumbling, the parasites within me and they're like, go hit the fridge. It, it will get correlated. Satan's. It'll get correlated to ice cream satans. Yeah, <laughs> the ice cream satans. Exactly. It'll instead. It'll instead draw up my stronger intention and the the strong vision of what I want. It's kind of like we were saying before about the psyche, the unconscious not really comprehending negation well. So if you're really focused on what you don't want, I got to stop doing this. I got to stop doing this. Or I don't want this. I don't want this. You're basically telling your mind more of this (laughs) and the more effective method would be what you would rather, what you actually want, keeping that in your vision. And so ideally, and I may be way oversimplifying this, but ideally whatever the bad habit trigger moment is, will now start to have a conditioning or an anchor to the vision of what you'd rather be like and how it would feel to be that way. Is that at all accurate? Yeah, I mean, like a a good way, like if you got um, a craving for ice cream, right? You start to link your craving for ice cream with uh, visualizing a mental image of, you know, what you want to look like and and link that to that feeling. So that way, next time you feel a taste of ice cream, you can you can slowly make it like when you get that feeling, you just immediately start thinking of yourself in shape instead of even going through that little spot. I mean, that one's a little bit more difficult because you're kind of like linking, you know, um, because if you were like legitimately hungry for some reason, it's really hard to fight that off versus like your mind, you're bored and you're just eating out of that. Another example of this, uh, like have you ever seen clockwork orange classic movie, right? I actually never have. Oh man. I, I don't know if, I don't know if I would say you would like, like the movie, but it's definitely an important movie to see at some point but the the crux of the movie spoiler alert so you know close your ears whatever but they take this this criminal that just is into all sorts of horrible behavior and they feed him some sort of a medicine that makes him sick and they force him to watch a whole bunch of movies of like all the things that normally he likes people getting hurt and people doing drugs and just like all sorts of random criminal acts and bombs exploding and as they force him to watch this with his eyes pried open that's probably the the imagery you've seen at some point it's like a guy being forced to watch movies with yeah exactly 
Well, the premise of that is that they've made him sick through some kind of, um, you know, like a drug that they gave him. And now everything on the screen is being anchored to that feeling of sickness. So now when he goes back out into the world, you know, a year later, if he sees or even thinks about doing a violent act, it's anchored to that feeling of sickness. And he just immediately starts getting stomach cramps and he can't go on and he folds over. I mean, so that there's one of those connections to the MK Ultra kind of aspect that I mentioned. And here's also a, a version of like a nefarious implementation of anchors, right? This isn't something that a normal person would do in like a self-help ritual to make themselves, you know, violently ill and just, you know, basically learn to hate all the things that they used to like. So that's that's one version of it. But I, I think there's so many others that don't necessarily require outside substances or anything. A lot of it can just happen in your mind. Very cool, man. We're at that point where we're going to take our musical intermission and head over to hour two. So we'll have about three minutes of tunes, enough time to for me and Thomas to go refresh ourselves. And if anybody out there wants to join us on the Rockfin side, it is a great time in the second hour. We always get deeper, expanding on the topics. And you can and also join. <laughs> You can also join my Patreon at uh, patreon.com forward slash interverse. And the full show will be posted up there later tonight. ASAP. Highly recommend it. Thomas, uh, what you got going on with Paranoid American right now? What's new since we last had you on? Oh, man, I've, I've got a, a bunch of stuff that's planned, but I don't want to drop too many of the secrets. So the biggest one that's the most recent is this homunculus owner's manual that I did with Juan. It's got 40 pages all original illustrations. I've got another pamphlet on MK Ultra, and uh, and I think your crowd might really especially appreciate my coloring books, which have been pretty much like my biggest seller, even though it was just kind of this offhand project that I just wanted to do for fun. And now on Amazon, I've got um, a, a coloring book on American cryptids. I've got one called Paranoid Portraits. I've got one called American Love, Modern American Lovecraft, which is all sort of Lovecraftian Cthulhu inspired coloring books. So, yeah, sometimes I, I actually just like bring out a little coloring book, put on some music and just like let my mind kind of take over for I don't know if it's anchoring or anything, but it definitely it, it almost turns into like a soothing thing. Sometimes I don't even care if like the colors match up. I just enjoy doing it. So, yeah, that's. Check me out on ParanoidAmerican.com, at ParanoidAmerican on most social media channels, the ones that I haven't got kicked off yet. Brilliant, man. Yeah, that comic or that uh, cartoon coloring book, Be Fun, that's my art style as I just draw black lines that I then color within. I make my own coloring pages. I get pretty intense with it. And it is soothing. It activates so many elements of the second chakra to just let yourself go into a flow state where there's no wrong answers. It's very, very yeah, exactly. There's no wrong answers to a color. even if you want to go outside the lines, you know what I mean? I can't like there's something a part of me that won't let me color outside the line. It, it doesn't. Well, you're not right. supposed to. Yeah. OK. OK. There are rules. <laughs> there's rules to coloring books. <laughs> but any color is fine. <laughs> OK. OK. We're going to have our musical break. Join us on the Rockfin side. It's going to be fun. Hit me up for tuning interversepodcast.com forward slash sound dash healing. The sessions have been getting better than ever, especially after we had Carla Adams on. I, I learned a lot from that and it's made the sessions that much more deep and powerful. So appreciate everybody out there for the support. We'll catch you on the next one. If you're just a free listener, watch out Wednesday for our 
Astro Herbalism of Leo, Vibrant Episode 100. That's going to be Liddy Kitty, as the kids say. All right. See you guys for the second hour. Much love. Thanks, Thomas.